you know, through value-added products and uh, more meal convenience, we're educating Australian consumers around how to eat pork, and uh, and that's driving consumption. But it's still, uh, you know, got a way to go. We we eat a lot of meat in Australia, about 120 kilos per capita. 55 kilos of that is chicken, and then uh, pork and bacon and ham slips back to about 25. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Swine management to the next level. Cloudfarms.com. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts, MS Gold, the best hygiene products in livestock farming. Feed Flow is changing the way the swine industry sees feed. As the world's only on-pipe feed sensor, Feed Flow tells you exactly how much feed is being delivered to your animals, so you can be sure that every pig in your barn is well-fed and growing. With industry-leading precision and up-to-the-minute real-time data and alerts, FeedFlow is a simple and affordable way to improve production outcomes across your organization. Feed is too expensive to ignore. Try FeedFlow today. Hello, and welcome to our latest uh, podcast, Swine Podcast. I'm Jerry Purvis, your host, and today we have uh, Dr. Robert Van Barnwell, uh, COO, CEO, uh, Managing Director of Sun Pork. Uh, Dr. Van Barbell, uh, glad to have you here. Thanks, Jerry. Great to be here. Uh, I guess before we get started, we always like to maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got to where you're at today. And so, Yeah, um, so I am the group CEO of Sun Pork. Sun Pork is the largest pork producer in Australia. Um, small by world standards, but we're about uh, 52,500 sows. Uh, we have 43 farms uh, down the east coast and into South Australia and seven farms in uh, New Zealand. And then we have um, uh, an abattoir in Queensland that pro- uh, processes 95% of Queensland's pigs and is the only export abattoir in that state. And we have a shareholding in another abattoir in South Australia and a value-add plant in Brisbane. Um I got into my role accidentally. I'm a, a scientist uh, originally, uh, became a consultant, ultimately became chair of the Sunport board uh, in about 2013. And then uh, through a series of acquisitions, we had multiple CEOs reporting into uh, the board. So I thought I'm going to uh, take a change in my life and came into a management role. And I've been doing that since uh, 2016. And uh, loving the challenges. So, how would you uh, maybe compare uh, swine production there to maybe what we have in the, in uh, in the states here? How's it uh, similar or different? It's different, very different. Um, I mean, our feed costs are traditionally higher than yours, but they only ever you know at the moment they're at record highs, but they're only about sixty three percent of our production costs. So our labour and utilities and freight and things like that are massively higher than uh, in the US. Uh, and in Australia, we're predominantly a skin-on carcass market. 
uh, servicing the domestic industry. We have limited carcass exports only to uh, Singapore. Some um, some cuts into places like Hong Kong and uh, and Vietnam, but uh, very much a carcass market. Um, and our primary markets are the major retailers in the country um, who buy the pig. We then cut them to their specifications and make them shelf ready and uh, play on. So, as you can see, uh, very very different to to how the US market operates. Yeah. So, so how would a consumers there be be uh, uh, different in, in as far as what uh, you know is taste a very important? You know, what are the what are they looking for? Yeah, I mean. Consumers in Australia compared to the U.S. are pretty uneducated pork eaters. Um, we had uh, a very strong um, English base to our population and for a very long time, uh, you know, there's been this um, you, you must cook pork well to, uh, you know, make sure you don't get worms. And, of course, we don't have trichinosis worms in Australia. Uh, on top of that, we have this challenge where... Um, we demand a very lean pig. So we produce, we can produce 110, 120 kilo carcass. I'm sorry, you'll have to do the conversion to pounds. Uh, we're metric here. Um, we produce 110, 120 kilo carcass with an average back fat of 11.7 mils. So uh, it's a very, very lean pig. And if you overcook that, it's quite, quite a dry eating experience. So, you know, through value-added products and uh more meal convenience. We're educating Australian consumers around how to eat pork, and uh, and that's driving consumption. But it's still, uh, you know, got a way to go. We we eat a lot of meat in Australia, about 120 kilos per capita. 55 kilos of that is chicken, and then uh, pork and bacon and ham slips back to about 25. Right. You know, it sounds very similar to uh, the point you made here. Uh, it seems even uh, consumers here over tend to overcook meats, and uh, and as the as the drive as feed costs have gotten you know uh, more expensive, you know those lean animals are going to be more efficient. And uh, but but as you say, you, you know you can you overcut those meats, and it's like a piece of leather here. And uh, so I think there's there's a good bit of educating uh, uh, to go around everywhere. <laughs> As far as how to cook, uh, my mother, you know, she overcooked meats, and uh, my wife overcooks meat. So, <laughs> obviously, your wife doesn't listen to this podcast. I try to, I try to let them, I try to take care of the, the cooking of the meat. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. You know, that, uh, stuff that we talked about earlier, and just kind of leading the point. Um, you, you just, uh, I guess, uh, had a paper just recently published uh, looking at. Uh, you know, the value of uh, the net protein contribution of beets, of animal production versus plant production. And, and, and I think that's very pertinent to, to, you know, the conversation that's going around today uh, of the sustainability, you know, of, of animal production. So uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that, that project. Sure. So um, I, I suppose it's a bit unusual for a uh, commercial pork value chain to be publishing papers. But, um, you know, it wasn't so long ago I saw the CSIRO in Australia had published 
um, data around the net protein contribution of cattle, either grass-fed or uh, feedlot-fed. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, this is important to the debate because our detractors very often talk about, uh, you know, livestock consuming food that could otherwise be directly consumed by humans. And uh, we know that's just not true. And uh, from a sustainability perspective in pork production, we have to remember why pork is the most consumed meat in the world. And that's effectively because the pig is used as a bank for excess grains and byproducts. Now, over time, that's evolved, and we obviously have biosecurity and food safety things to consider. Um, but it is absolutely critical that we remember the more of those products that we can use, the more sustainable pig production is. So we went through the exercise of actually looking at food that could go directly to the human food chain uh, versus food via pork from our value chain, and we showed that uh, we produce 3.26 times as much human edible protein as we consume in the process. Uh, and we learned that that, that number is quite specific to your own value chain. So, uh, you know, I think more people around the world should be looking at calculating that number for their specific production system and almost using it as a global KPI to make sure that you're trying to push that number as high as you can. You know, it was a good point to read your paper. Uh, that the, I didn't realize there was as much waste and human uh, food production. Uh, you know, his bread, it was white bread, it's like 70%, you know, is all the, uh, so it's not very inefficient. And, and we were all, you know, the, the uh, animal production or, or even feed mills, all that started as we became uh, consumers of waste streams. And uh, so, a very good point that I think a lot of people miss uh, when they when they look at uh, maybe like the greenhouse emissions is how we impact uh, our environment. Oh, absolutely! So and when you look at processing, it's just um, if you look at it on an energy basis, it's incredibly inefficient between the paddock and a plant based component reaching a human, even via an animal. Um, so, uh, and a lot of these people when they talk about carbon contributions, et cetera, are only looking at scope one and two emissions. They do not look at scope three very often, which is where they need to account for all the byproducts they're not using. And you add them in, and uh, is apparently uh, low-carbon emitting foods are actually very large contributors when you take the bits that don't make human uh, the human plate. Yeah, and, and you made some good points there also, um, talk a little bit about uh, protein quality. You know the difference between you know maybe uh, as nutritious. Now we're 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 dealing with amino acids, and our body you know has requirements for amino acids, not protein. So so talk a little bit about the difference between you know uh, meat derived protein versus plant derived. Yeah, I mean that's actually the key when you look at human edible protein contribution. You have to. Not only look at the conversion rate, but you have to look at the protein quality as well. So um, on the surface, the calculations are very simple. Um, the first step is you have to actually calculate uh, from the ingredients that are going in your pig diets, which parts of those could actually go directly to a human and make 
make a, an assumption, if you like, around that. Um, the, the reality is uh, you, you could take a downgraded um, mouldy wheat crop and in theory you could eat that if you're a human. The reality is it's never going to make any kind of milling process. It will go to waste and stock feed is the only part. Um, you know, with oilseed meals, a lot of people argue particularly with soy that they're growing as much for the meal as they are for, for the oil. But uh, particularly in the US where demand for oilseeds uh, oils is going through the roof around sustainable aviation fuel metrics, etc., you're going to be end, ending up with a lot of soybean meal that doesn't have a home. So something's going to have to eat that. Uh, so you, you make those judgments on all of your uh, ingredients. You work out the efficiency of conversion on a protein-to-protein basis. And then you start looking at amino acid quality. And you actually look at nutrient requirements of humans um, at an infant level. So that's going to be the highest requirement and relate that back to the protein you've produced. And from that, you come up with actually the amount of protein with the right amino acid profile to meet the nutrient requirements of the human that is eating it. And from that, that's where the livestock products take off. And unfortunately, uh, again, some of our detractors don't take that important step of calculating what you actually need from an amino acid perspective from the food you're eating. All they do is look at red protein, and that's, you know, we can't make judgments like that. That's not how the world works. Exactly. You know, you made some good points about, um, you know, having very expensive commodities uh, where you're at. So what are some of the waste streams that you've been able to, you know, to capture uh, and be able to incorporate in your in your uh, diets? Yeah, well, um, we spend as a business, so we consume about 310,000 tonnes of mixed feed per annum. Um, as a business, we spend a very significant amount of time on our grain buying, um, and that varies depending on whether we're in the south of Australia or the north. Uh, so in the south, it's predominantly wheat and barley. In the north, it's wheat, barley and sorghum. Um, and we literally hunt for low-quality grains, grains that, you know, we watch weather patterns, we watch harvest patterns, we uh, talk to integrators, we talk direct to farmers. We want the grain that they know is not going to make a premium market, and that's what we buy, and we design our mills to try and capture as much of that, either as physical grain or on contract, whatever we can do. But that's step one, and that is, you know, that's a big uh, a big pool of our, our nutrients, but sounds funny. We're looking for uh, the lowest quality we can get because our job as nutritionists is to characterize that and put it into a diet and complement it with other ingredients to get you know an adequate diet that's going to promote optimum growth of the pig. And we do do that very well. We in Australia we can use meat and bone meal and blood meal, um, so that's an incredibly valuable waste stream, if you like, that we can put into diets to complement um, the cereal base, soybean, canola. Um, but we use things like uh, faba beans, which are used as a rotation crop in, uh, in Queensland. They're not really produced for, for uh, human consumption. They're used to you know, regenerate a, a paddock after a, a wheat crop. 
Um, so we'll capture things like that. We use um, milling offals, uh, what we call mill run, which is all the, the uh, components that come off flour. Milling, um, I suppose the, the, the range is endless, but um, we, we have a very good database of, of the actual amino acid available contribution from these waste streams that allow us to put a complete to- diet together uh, pretty effectively. Yeah, you know, uh, we're very similar. Um, we're on the east, eastern U.S., so we're not in the we're not near the you know the Midwest where the grain belt uh, grain produces states. So, you know, our cost to freight our grain, you know, to us is is very expensive. So we we too look for a lot of uh, you know. It's funny what we're talking about wheat. Um, sometimes we're better off when we have a maybe less than optimal conditions for wheat. Because some of those farmers now have to sell, you know, they're not going to make milling grade. So, uh, and most of our poultry neighbors, they don't fight us for the wheat. So, uh, it, it really helps us sometimes when, when you know, maybe the rain, the weather is not, it's, it's good for <laughs> for wheat harvest. Uh, so, it's very similar to what you're saying. You, you know, you, you got to find those those bargains, those those opportunities. Yeah, it's very, very similar, yeah, what what are some of the unique maybe byproducts that you've been able to use uh, here recently? Um, I suppose we have uh, a wider range of um, oilseed meals, uh, maybe compared to the US. So, uh, soybean meal is a staple, but it's pretty much fully imported. Canola meal locally is used um, extensively, but we also have peanut meal, um, sunflower meal, uh, those. A wider range of oilseed meals, obviously in in uh, uh, lower quantities. Uh, if we lost access to meat and bone meal and blood meal, we would really struggle. Not only in ingredient pricing, but that net protein contribution would drop um, from our our supply chain. But the advantage of being in Australia is we don't have most of the diseases that you guys have. So no uh, pers on or uh, PED or anything like that, um, and it's all high-temperature rendering, so very limited uh, chance of spreading disease uh, of significance via those those animal protein meals, um, and that's an incredible uh, resource for us. Um, we do rely heavily on pulses as well and pulse offal, so things like lupins and peas and beans and and then when they're produced for export markets, the gradings from those products we put back into into the diets. Um, we don't use a lot of uh, palm kernel meal in Australia. Um, I know that maybe the availability is going to increase because I understand palm oil is becoming more prominent in US diets with more demand for tallows and, and uh, other oils into uh, sustainable fuel production. Um, but the actual deforestation component that's associated with barb kernel meal um, is viewed quite dimly by our customers, so they're, they're not really encouraging of us using that in our diets. Um, and traditionally, it's one of those, those byproducts that is so low in quality. You know, you can have a false economy by thinking, oh, well, that's cheap. I'll put it into the diet. Um, we don't have a lot of access to uh, DDGS in Australia. We don't um, 
uh, a lot of the the bioethanol production kind of failed, and uh, those refineries have been converted to other things. So, um, you know, that's that's probably uh, a summary. Apart from the downgraded uh, uh, cereals, which have a very wide range of uh, grades, and um, you know, we utilise mycotoxin binders quite extensively to make sure we can incorporate those things safely. And uh, sometimes you get it wrong, but not very often. Yep. You know, it's it's uh, it's interesting that um, a lot of these. Uh, I, I know you're you're the the feed mill guy is probably not your best friend sometimes when you when you throw all these different things at him, and uh, and they're probably very hard to pellet sometimes, uh, but. Uh, well, that's, that's another point, Jerry. Um, in Queensland, our feed is exclusively mash. So we've just built a new $15, $15 million feed mill, all mash, and that's because you can use a wider range of byproducts and you don't have to put them in a pellet. Um, the mill is on the farm and, uh, and um, so, you know, freight's uh, very effective and close. Um and I think in the modern environment, if you select your feeders properly and you have good on-farm management, that difference in uh, feed wastage between uh, mash and pellets is not as big as you think. Um, you certainly get different intake patterns. So when you convert from pellet to mash, you'll see quite a change in, uh, in um, feed consumption patterns. But uh, it stabilizes very quickly. But to your point, yeah, when you pellet, you limit your ability to use some of these co-products. And uh, in the south, we have one pellet milk, but all the rest are mass. Yeah, and a good point there. You know, a lot of times uh, the data supports if you're not pelleting very well, you know, you lose a lot of that advantage of pelleting. So if you're right. not having really pretty good, you know, quality pellets. So that's the thing. And particularly should- with sorghum-based diets, Jerry, um, you know they they pellet very differently to wheat and barley, and you can get you can pretty much get powder at the end. So why did you bother? Exactly. Yeah, we use a lot of wheat. You know, wheat's kind of covers a lot of sins. Uh, you can get great pellets. So um, that's that's something that uh, we we typically try to keep in the diets as well. So so what do you um, you know as we how do we educate people? It seems like, you know, here's the truth and, and there's a lot of myths out there. How do we, how do we educate people, you know, what we're saying today and, and uh, get that word out? Yeah. <laughs> so a very good question, Jerry, and I don't have all the answers. Um, you know, what do you got? Seven billion people in the world and they most of them get to eat three times a day. They don't know very much about what goes in their mouths. And uh, for something that's so important to us, um, there are a lot of people that can get away with saying anything. Um, so, you know, first step is to, as, as we've done, you publish it so you can say, I've got peer-reviewed publication with my data, where's yours? Um, the second thing around messaging is as pig farmers, um, livestock producers, you know, people are always going to assume that we, you know, we're defen- too defensive. Um, so we have to humanise this message, talk about the fundamentals of pig production, and you know, sometimes we have to reflect on the way we produce pigs. If it's uh, just 
things that could go straight into the human food chain being driven in to produce as much meat on the other side without a lot of uh, thought about why we're producing all that meat and where it's going to go, it's uh, a less compelling argument. Um, we're small enough in Australia to, uh, I mean, it is worldwide, we're boutique, let's face it. Uh, even though there's a lot of infrastructure in producing that, we can be quite detailed in what's going into our diets and uh, and maybe can get a bit more traction on how that all fits into the overall human food supply chain. But I think, yeah, so I don't have answers on how to have effective messaging. I think conversations like this are important, get the concept into people's minds. Uh, the most important thing is we just have to start talking about it. We've been very, very bad at getting our message out there. Um, the reason lots of people can say anything they like about livestock production is because nobody's providing an alternative debate. Exactly. You know, uh, I was thinking, what is the, we have a daunting task to feed the world and what we've got a double production by, what is it, 2050? And, uh, and so it's going to be, uh, we've got to figure out how to use these resources, uh, wisely. And I think, you know, just having a conversation that maybe we're not, you know, we're, we're not as, uh, inefficient as a lot of people realize, uh, and overall, we're you know we're we're have we have a place in, in taking some of these waste streams and and trying to feed the world and, and you know a lot of uh, I think a lot of it uh, most people doesn't don't know what it's like to not have food on the table and so uh, not many I mean certainly in the Western world very few people are hungry number one secondly most of them live in the city and food's just you know, on the corner. And thirdly, very, very few of them have any concept of what it takes to feed everybody. You know, they only think about themselves and, you know, the sheer volumes just to, to provide basic nutrition and then recognising that there's a very significant part of the world that doesn't have the abundance we have. They don't get the three meals a day. You know, we could produce a lot more just to cover off on those. Um, you know, that's just naivety and, uh, you know, it'd be nice to think you could feed the world from a, a vegetable garden on top of a high-rise building in the middle of uh, New York or Melbourne. But, uh, yeah, it's just not going to happen, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, yeah it's, it's amazing what uh, most people are far removed from, from agriculture today. And so really don't understand where their food comes for, from or, or understand what goes into, you know, producing. And I think they also fail to understand from a livestock perspective that um, a livestock takes a lot of the variability out of food supply. You know, we deal with all the fluctuations in grain supply. Uh, you get your consistent meat at the other end. You take that step out, all of a sudden the human population is dealing with all those fluctuations in, in grain supply and they're not going to like the outcome. Exactly. It's going to be, it'll be feast or famine. It'll be that, you know, once they have to, yep, you're exactly right. Correct. And there's plenty of examples in history of when that's good. It's been, yeah, catastrophic events uh, when that happens. So what, looking at your crystal ball, I know you're an integrator. What, what do you see some trends for consumers uh, coming down as, as we, uh, it seems consumers are more and more interested in, in, in what we're doing and how we're feeding animals. 
what do you see are some trends uh, for for maybe uh, you know you talked about lean meat. You think that's uh, we're going to move toward maybe something that's a little more uh, easier or forgiving, you know, in cooking. Or what do you think? Another good question. The um, taste still wins with the consumer. So you need a product that tastes great and uh, presents well and, and does that every time. And so we have a bit of a challenge there, certainly in Australia, because we are so lean and we have very low levels of intramuscular fat. So that's something we need to address because by default, if we get that right, that will drive more consumption. So taste is still critical and we as an industry have some room to improve. Second one is convenience. That will increase. People want more convenience. Um, you know, it's a balance between ready meals versus cook at home. I think that's, you know, still a growing market. But the convenience will continue to increase. You are correct. People say they want to know more about where their food's coming from and they say they will pay more for different uh, welfare standards and production systems. The reality is they don't. You know, they, they, uh, I'll tell you what you want to hear in a survey, but when it comes to spending the money, uh, the opposite prevails. And, uh, you know, we had some good examples of that in different countries during COVID. In New Zealand, the supermarkets were moving very quickly towards what they call free farm. So that's outdoor bread and growing uh, in large shelters on straw. Uh, all free range, that's where they were heading. And then when COVID hit, they kind of went totally the other way because it became very clear people wanted primal cuts, roasts, cost-effective ways of feeding their entire family, and the provenance component of it just fell by the wayside. So, uh, you know, that's that's um, important to remember. And I think, too, we have to remember as an industry, and we I think we need a, a united front here, People will say uh, what they think they want. They don't know how we produce pigs. They don't know what a good production system looks like. Um, we have to be cautious never to promote welfare as uh, use that as a marketing tool. If something is genuinely better welfare, then everybody in the industry has an obligation to adopt it. Uh, you should not be saying this is a higher welfare product than this one. You can say this is a different production system that has different attributes um, and let people make a choice on that basis. But if something is genuinely better welfare, then we need to, as a whole industry, adopt it and keep that standard across the board um, and do that as you know, basic obligation as livestock producers um, rather than use it as a marketing tool. And as we've seen in chicken, you know, out uh, free range and uh, uh, cage-free eggs very quickly gravitate back to the standard price uh, they were beforehand. All that's done is put a whole stack of costs back on the producer and they don't actually have any welfare evidence that that's better. It's just that the, you know, the retailers have said that production system is what we think our consumers want, so that's now our standard. Yeah, I think it's a good point. You know, the science should be driving these welfare, you know, if we find better welfare, we're morally and ethically, you know, uh, should adopt these practices across the board, no doubt. 
Uh, and those animals are more productive. When we have an animal that is uh, happier, you know, uh, and we can improve their way of life, they're going to be more productive. So uh, it, it, it uh, behooves us to do that as well. All right. Well, very good. Uh, I, and one last question. I, uh, you know, it seems it's kind of on that point. Uh, some of these uh, new niche markets are kind of driving uh, taking away their opportunity to use some of these byproducts, you know, the ones that the all veg products, uh, you know, uh, what have you, that they eliminate a lot of these byproducts that we have. So it's kind of like we're going in opposite directions as far as trying to, trying to be sustainable, but at the same token, trying to meet, you know, a standard that, uh, consumers think, you know, it, it, it means something. So what, what are your thoughts, uh, about some of those? I think uh, let's go back to where we started. Don't forget why pork production is the most consumed meat in the world. Think about the role of the pig in our food chain. If you want to start manipulating that, you're devaluing the pig. You're devaluing the contribution it makes to the food chain. Um, and that's, you know, that's not sustainable. It's a marketing ploy that's only going to appeal to a very small number of the, you know, the consumers. Uh, and I think the, the biggest issue for me with that is if you have a good nutritionist, those diets are going to have zero impact on the final quality of the, of the, the products unless you're specifically manipulating a fatty acid component that is discernibly different from a flavor profile, then it's going to have zero impact whatsoever. Um, and if, you, you know, if you're in countries like the US and a lot of the fat comes off, well, <laughs> you're wasting your time. But, uh, yeah, I think it's we've got to be really cautious of those type of marketing ploys because they detract from the value of the animal as a food source. And that comes back to what we're talking about. You will lower your net protein contribution if you do that. And that's, uh, that's not what we're trying to do. We've got to remember the basics. Yeah, I know you probably feel the same way. As being a producer, you know, at the end of the day, you have some uh, – some joy of, of, of understanding that you're producing a product that that's feeding people every day. And so you're, you're, you're meeting a need that pe- all people have, you know, and, and that to me, that's a good feeling. And that's what keeps us going every day, knowing that we're, uh, you know, participating in, in feeding the world. And uh, so it's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Feedflow. Feed is too expensive to ignore. Take control with Feedflow. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adiseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, Fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com.
Very good. Well, we're uh, kind of at the end. Uh, uh, they always want. We got a couple questions, three questions. Uh, want to ask you, uh, what what is your favorite resource? And it doesn't have to be about pigs. It can be, you know, nonfiction. What what book or resource do you uh, maybe are you reading now? Or what's your favorite? Uh, I thought about this a lot, Jerry. I didn't come up with a sensible answer. I read a lot, but uh, normally uh, business magazines. The actual resource that I get the most out of in my uh, in my role is the Harvard Business Review. So uh, you know that comes through every couple of months, and I read it from cover to cover. And uh, I'm fortunate to be going to the the Harvard Agribusiness Roundtable in Boston in January. I'm really really looking forward to that. But I find that uh, that resource, from a business perspective, is probably the one I gravitate to the, the most, and look forward to the to reading the most. Very good. And uh, what would be, well, who would you say maybe was a, your, uh, the most influential person in your life or, or uh, that you could think of that had the most impact uh, to get you where you, know, you are today? Or who would be a, somebody? Um, I, you know, I, I, um, I've been around long enough to have been, uh, had the privilege of meeting some fantastic members of the pork industry. Um, probably no doubt my uh, PhD supervisor, Ted Batterham, uh, was the most influential person. He he really uh, took me under his wing and, and taught me a really uh, – he gave me a really tremendous scientific grounding. Um, you know, it was very unfortunate he died when he was only 49. So, you know, I've <laughs> uh, certainly uh, outlived him, but um, uh, he um, – he really set me up, and um, when he passed away, it kind of uh, opened a lot of doors for me because I was seen as his his protege, and and I'd say that that accelerated my my career significantly. Unfortunately, he wasn't there to share it, but uh, he uh, was very much um, a pivotal person in my uh, life and career. Very good, very good. And last, uh, what would be some key traits that you think? Uh, successful people have in our industry? What are some key things or, or abilities that, uh, you know, mark a successful person or, in, or business? Yeah, I think um, working in agriculture, you tend to come across um, fewer egos than you do uh, working in other industries, and I, I think that's a, that's a good start. Um I think uh, also in agriculture, people understand the value of a hard day's work and really know what a hard day's work is. Um, and when you're in agriculture, you, you love the industry you're in and you commit your life to it. Uh, modern life today is, you know, a lot of, a lot of 20 to 30-year-olds are going to have seven careers, not, uh, not seven jobs. Um, and uh, I, I think... While, while you learn new skills, your contribution is much less than uh, people that have, you know, had a long-term commitment to an industry and, and, as you said, have a passion for feeding people and, and really understand the fundamentals of why they're in the business they're in. And, and uh, you know, so they're the traits, um, persistence, hard work and, uh, and the down-to-earth, um, I reckon, uh, make make agriculture a fantastic uh, industry to work in. Yeah, you know, and I could I could uh, 
attest to what you're saying too. It seemed like, you know, people have people in agriculture have commonality, doesn't matter where you're at, you know, across the world. You know, we have the same, I would say, same traits, you know, here uh, uh, suffice for what you're saying there. So, so very good. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we're all, uh, you never find that person in ag that's, that's generally not a hardworking person or uh, that's not, you know, had to face hardships and, and try to, you know, overcome issues. And uh, it's, it just, it just makes for a really uh, resilient person. If they're going to be successful, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. But you know, at the end of the day, we live to fight another, another battle. <laughs> That's what we do. Yeah, I, I think you've summed it up nicely. And uh, um, lucky we have those people because we'll all be pretty hungry without them. <laughs> That's right. All right, very good. Well, uh, enjoyed uh, talking with you today, and uh, uh, we'll look forward to hearing more from you. Thanks, Jerry. Pleasure to be here.